Hello and welcome to Supers on Screen, the superhero movie podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Roth. Today we're going to be talking about the um, New Line Cinema Marvel Comics movie, Blade. My guests tonight are Cameron Diordio, editor and senior reader at The Rampalian, and occasional Deadshirt.net contributor, and Jen Overstreet, illustrator and a member of our Merry Deadshirt.net crew. Uh, how's it going, you guys? Hey, Pretty good. Welcome to the show. Uh, we'll be talking about Blade today, which is the movie that's sort of credited not with so much starting the superhero movie boom, but with uh, sort of being the harbinger for movies like uh, X-Men and Spider-Man, where studios started having confidence again in comic book adaptations. So it'll be kind of cool to look at this movie, because it's, it's, it's sort of a superhero movie, it's sort of an action horror thing. I want to ask each of you um, how you first encountered the movie and what you first thought of it. Jen, what was your first experience with Blade? Um, I just watched Blade for the first time yesterday. <laughs> I had never seen this, and I somehow, somehow I sort of got to the idea that it was going to be one of those, like, campy, like, like, I got the general impression that it was going to, it was great because it was campy, which was not the case at all. It, w- it was honestly a really, really awesome movie just watching it. Uh, so I don't know how that happened. This movie's still under a lot of people's radars, I think. Yeah, it, it was just like, I always heard of it as this sort of strange entity. Cam, how did you first see Blade? Uh, I saw it as I believe it was intended to be seen as a 12-year-old boy. Um, <laughs> and I really, really liked it. I probably saw it on VHS, because that's how you did that back then. Um... And yeah, I loved every second of it then. And I watched it again for this this past weekend. And I mean, the the lit degrees and stuff kind of made it harder to enjoy on the straight up level, but it was still a lot of fun, so. I've actually this is one of the this is the first movie we're doing on the show so far that I hadn't seen before doing the show. I actually I bought this this DVD used like 2 years ago and kept saying I was going to watch it and I put it off for a long time until it was time to do Supers on Screen. And so this was also my first time watching the movie and I was really really impressed with it. I really didn't even have much of an idea of what to expect. I'd never seen any of the Blade movies all the way through, just bits and pieces on TV. And I thought this was a, this was a really really solid, really cool movie that's that's very different from a lot of the more the more like um more formulaic like superhero fare that we got after this. I think it also benefited a lot from, um, probably from Buffy the Vampire Slayer being such a big hit at the time it was made. Yeah, it couldn't hurt. <laughs> and especially with the with the current like upsurge of vampire stuff in a totally different direction, it was really refreshing to see some like straight up gory. Yeah, this movie is is flat out hard R too, um, which is unusual for for I guess. And I, I I've kind of lumped this in with the superhero genre for the for the cast, but it's really more along the lines of say like Resident Evil, I think. Yeah, I remember the last uh, superhero movie that was an R. Um, other than this, Future Warzone, I think, and Watchmen. Yeah, yeah, Watchmen had to be, of course. It was, was Blade a superhero property before it was a movie? Uh, Blade was a, a character that came out of uh, Marvel Comics that was more of a... His, his um, original origins were actually kind of different. He was a vampire hunter whose superpower was that he was immune to becoming a vampire. I liked him a lot in that like mode, actually. He started out in Tomb of Dracula, I think, and just kind of like had his own mini-arcs and then kind of grew out of that. But he relied a lot more on his kind of being wily, which was nice, but this was a 90s action movie, so wasn't quite the same, obviously. Was definitely more martial arts-driven. But the, the, the idea of him being sort of a half-vampire daywalker apparently was devised to freshen him up for the Spider-Man animated series in the 90s, where they kind of gave him this this more supernatural, like, I guess, more action, cool power, where he would have superpowers beyond just being immune to vampirism. And then that's sort of where they where they jumped off to do mostly new things with this movie, is my understanding. Yeah, yeah, I think that Morbius was the one who gave him the whole vampirism in the original canon. But I... This is obviously a totally separate thing. Yeah, there's no Morbius yet in any in any uh, live action film, and that's okay with me. I want to show how little I know about 
Marvel for a second. Are there vampires in Marvel? Oh yeah, Dracula is actually in Marvel co- in Marvel yeah, comics. Yeah. What? Yeah, they have this straight up for realsies Dracula. We have Dracula. We have Mephistopheles. Uh, we have. I'm sure there's some other there crazy stuff. of vampires who secretly run the entire society and control all the cops. Well, I mean, you have the Hellfire Club, depending on how metaphorical you want to get. <laughs> I, I don't recall ever reading a Marvel book where, and again, I was, a DC, I was a, definitely more of a DC until the last couple of years, but I don't remember reading a Marvel book where the, the depth and, and the far reach of the vampire sort of aristocracy was, was so intense and, and so, over, uh, so overwhelming. That may be more of an invention for this film because they don't have to worry about the vampires would have an easier time taking over the world if there weren't like Avengers, I guess. Yeah, and it'd be a continuity nightmare to have to deal with this crazy like vampire Illuminati that exists. Yeah, but there's there's hella vampires in in Marvel now. Um, Jubilee's a vampire. She's been, yeah, yeah. Jubilee lost her powers in after House of M when Scarlet Witch took all the took a bunch of mutants' powers away, and now since then she has just been a vampire. Oh, Jubilee! So uh, uh, to dive in sort of the beginning of this movie, I think it established itself like right off the bat as being this is a movie for grown-ups. One of the first things you see in the movie is a crazy rave where there's a dude just getting a blowjob in the corner. <laughs> oh, I remember that. And that's a hell of a way to open. <laughs> um, then there's a big shower of blood that comes from the uh, from the fire suppression system. That's pretty. That whole intense. scene was like very, very um, reminded me so much of the Matrix, which must have been kind of at the same time because you got all the trench coats and the raving, and the, I don't know, it's very much the same sort of uh, aesthetic. This movie actually predates the Matrix by about a year. Yeah, yeah. So they take credit for all they um, take credit for all a lot of uh, mm. trend setting, I guess. Though action movies take so long to make, they are probably made completely independent without knowledge of one another. Yeah. It was that time. You know? I don't want to see Blade invented the leather duster martial arts, but he certainly forwarded form. Well, let's talk about the leather duster wearing hero of this film. Uh, Blade is really has a tremendous amount of fun doing action in this movie, despite being such a sourpuss most of the time. Mm. I like that one of the first things that we see him do is uh, he he bandages he pins a vampire to a wall, and then for no one's benefit but him but his own does a very mechanical fist pump. Yeah. <laughs> ah! His entrance in that scene is so awesome, too. You just got everything covered in red, and then just, like, his black boot is the Every- only thing there. Everyone knows who he is. Yeah. There's that moment where they're just like, oh, shit. Uh, yeah, he's very uh, not tortured. Well, he's tortured, but not to the extent where he can't, like, enjoy a good vampire bloodbath. Yeah, he's not culling it out or anything. Yeah, exactly. I think this movie really tries to have its cake and eat it too, and eat it too with Blade, where he can be this sort of tortured hero with a with a terrible past, but also be like, yeah, I'm gonna go out and kill some vampires, and it's gonna be awesome. Well, I like that it it sort of ends up being his motivation for like not wanting to be human and not wanting to like his motivation is fighting people. For the most part, like it's not, re- it's kind of his tortured past, but it's more like his soldier mission. Or... Yeah, like if no, if he's not gonna do it, then who will? That whole thing, which also would be ruined if you had the Avengers sting in this universe. Yeah. Well, you're talking about it, liking to go out and fight. The fight choreography in this movie, top to bottom, is pretty stellar. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I love that bit in the uh, the fight in the huge antechamber. If I can jump ahead to like the big climax where he throws his sword up and it has the kind of hilt handle thing go out and knock the the, the stones mm. down. That was fantastic. That's uh, yeah, I like I like the sort of Chekhov's booby trapped sword element yeah. where you get it established for you early on and it comes back a, a number of times in new creative ways. 
Yeah, it was it was a good callback to the kind of the wily roots we were talking about before. <laughs> I like how punchable all the bad guys are. Oh yeah. They're just like they're like really you just really want to see them get their asses kicked. Yeah, you're rarely voting for someone's face to be graded against the side of a subway, but that's one of the times. Can anybody think of an, an instance of the face versus moving subway train thing before this? Because it shows up in a number of superhero movies after, and probably other action movies. I, uh, I remember reading something that said that for the time it took those trains to pass in those scenes, they'd have to be like 22,000 cars long <laughs> or something. Do they ever establish what city they're in? I think huh. they're in... Are they in Los Angeles? Maybe? I don't know. Not good at skylines. So. Yeah, I'm bad at that too. So, I think one of the guiding questions tonight could be, beyond having the word the word Marvel in the credits, what makes Blade a superhero movie, or is should, should be treated more like a like just a straight-up action movie? Well, I mean, he is super-powered at like the very core of it, so there's that. Um, that's the obvious answer. Like many movie superheroes, especially in the movies, he brushes against the, comes up against the law, because the, because the usually superhero movies either they're the police are incompetent or or corrupt. Um, you have to justify your vigilante. He has a he has a cool superhero name, which is the only name he uses, and he walks around town in his vampire killing gear day or night. Yeah, he is easily recognizable, and he operates with pretty much, like, no regard for law as we know it. He's toting and firing huge guns in broad daylight all the time. Banging a cop's face against a cop car. Yeah, that was gorgeous. Like, no (laughs) one stopped him. I think uh, I think it's pretty cool to note some of the some of the cool anti-vampire gadgets that I think would make their way into things like True Blood later on, like the silver laced pepper spray, yeah. mm. all, all, all the essence of garlic and everything. Yeah, I like when they put essence of garlic in the bloodstream. Yeah, that was nice. Anytime people exploded in this movie, it was pretty spectacular. Oh yeah, the great <laughs> pseudoscience with the uh, with the hematology going. On and the react the explosive reaction, just kind of the swelling, the puffing, and the pop. Well, I mean, I'm glad he chose to go by Blade because no one. Well, I mean, I guess if you're dressed like that, even if you're going by Eric, they're gonna be a little worried. But Eric, the Vampire Slayer. That is technically what his business cards could say, because his mom calls him Eric like very briefly for that one second. Oh my God! The so the. Tortured backstory kind of lost me when they introduced his mom. Yeah, that his was vampire version of his mom, who's like, like, there's this th- weird sexual interaction. Yeah, it gets very Oedipal, Hamlety kind of. Like, it just didn't make any sense to me. Like, well, being a vampire automatically makes you into a horny super freak. Clearly, that's yeah. what I always tell him. But, like, I, I guess what we're supposed to believe, in, in case, like, it wasn't clear to you, was, I guess, Deacon Frost bit his mother and turned her while she was pregnant and or entering labor, and that's how this all came about. So, Eric is born half vampire, sort of, super gay vampire, and his mother gets turned and has been shacking up with Deacon Frost for Blade's entire life. Has not Does she, like, live in that locking bed pod? Well, I mean, Which we, was a weird thing to me. In the beginning of the movie, we see Frost, like, leave the bedroom to go to some party, and um, there's a woman with him at the, the time, whose face we don't see, who we later find out is his mother, so I guess the implication is, you know, that, that they're... They've been a, they're they're a, a thing all the time, and she just hangs out there. I I guess all the time because we never see her any other time. It's yeah. just like a, a saran wrap cube that she stays in to keep fresh throughout the day. <laughs> yeah, Tupperware mom. She never comes out really. 
They did kind of earn his recognizing her by him having her ID, like, posted up in his secret base and looking at it frequently, so that way, when we do see her, we're like, oh, okay, I recognize her, and he should recognize her, even though he was even sentient when he last saw her. So was that, was that like, a weird shrine to her? They kept, they kept like, shooting that, that flower vase and the shrine and i did not get the connection i never got a good look at that either i I, if i had to guess i'd say in test screenings they were like who was that woman and how was he supposed to know that it was his mom and then that's how they answered it by just showing it a bunch well he's clearly he's clearly got like you know he's he's bruised about it as i'm sure a lot of people would be in that situation and that his his feeling some sort of maybe subconscious a connection between his mother and um, Dr. Karen Jensen is one of the reasons why she's why, why she gets rescued in the first place. Yeah. We can talk a little bit about Karen too. She's a pretty cool character. Oh, God, she's awesome. <laughs> in, in a genre that's so plagued with with really lousy or unimportant female characters, Karen Jensen is like sort of like I've never heard of her. This is not like one of the one of like the the big everyone's seen it superhero movies but she kicks ass she's like an amazing example of a really really cool well done co-lead to the movie and i like to see it they could like take it to a romantic extent but they never do i really appreciated that they did a great job avoiding the trope of having female scientists in superhero movies are are just really stupid and useless for some reason even in their own fields I thought they did a really good job with that, making her a specialist and knowing what was up. I like now the relationship never goes romantic, which is nice because I I know that she's sort of I, I guess the implication that she she sort of has this sort of maternal vibe from her because he <laughs> associates her with his mother, and it's especially oh, refreshing that they don't hook up because you know then later his mom sort of comes on to him. Uh, She's a hematologist, she's an expert in blood, and she is apparently the only expert in blood who's ever confronted the vampire situation, or else a hyper-mega-genius, because she was able to solve vampirism in, like, two days. Yeah, that was impressive. told by the vampires. They, uh, they kill all the doctors who think about hematology. I don't know. (laughs) They they control that industry. But they do own like all those blood banks. Blood banks. The idea of like an underground vampire world, like this, this really like I, I couldn't help but keep thinking about True Blood. The way that this could sort of be a movie that takes place in that same world, but before the show begins. Like this is what the vampire world was like before they sort of came out in the beginning of the show. That would explain a lot of the anti-vampire sentiment in yeah. True Blood. <laughs> Part of reason why. Karen is so super cool and effective is because in this world they really don't treat vampires as magic. It's more of a science fiction thing, like the idea that this is like a like a like a blood condition that just changes you. Uh, I don't I don't I can't think of a, a more of an example of a, a vampire thing where they try to play it so so scientifically instead of supernatural. Yeah, I mean, the only other example I can think of that is within the Marvelverse, again, with Morbius, where he's got the big, huge, conflicted thing where all he wants to do is be human again. But, I mean, I'm not really sure which came first, chicken or egg there. But, yeah, I really like that approach, kind of having a hard SF take on vampires. I think that, yeah, I think the only thing I can think of that takes it so scientifically is maybe True Blood. Yeah, yeah. True Blood also kind of tries to, to walk that line because they they will make up certain rules, but at the same time, Vampire Blood pretty much does whatever the plot needs Vampire Blood to do that episode. Or, well, this episode, it will cure you. This episode, it gets you high. This episode, it's Viagra. <laughs> Insert V. Isn't that true with every vampire show, though? They sort of, like, pay, make a new, uh, a new mythology about it to suit their needs. I guess it has some sort of internal consistency, usually. This is a, you know, a vampire universe where sunblock works for limited periods of time. (laughs) What kind of high-powered sunblock were they using? I don't know, but why don't they use it more often? I mean, I read that SPF 15 and above, it's not any more effective, so I mean, 
Yeah, it's just I don't know what that's worth. That's, like higher than SPF fifteen, just you have to reapply it less often. <laughs> I know this as a pale person. <laughs> well, I'm sure you and Deacon Frost could get along just fine. Were he unexploded. Well, let's talk about Deacon Frost. Of He's so annoying. Oh god, he has that face. <laughs> oh, you just want to hit it. His horrible stoner sidekick was like, I, I think they made him extra terrible just to, like, make you like Deacon more. <laughs> he reminded me of, like, a knockoff version of, uh, Ewan McGregor's Tales from the Crypt Vampire. Yeah, I'm making that reference. And, I don't know, I, I just feel like he saw that episode and was like, I could do that, and couldn't. But still, I mean, he did what we needed him to do, I wanted to hit him, so... Deacon is, is apparently like a, a sort of an underdog within its own society because the movie establishes this idea that there's sort of like two classes of vampire. Like there's pure blood vampires, and apparently you can be born a vampire, and that he's like this he's he's like this um, sort of under undercast vampire looking to make waves. He's like this Stalinistic hero that just he's he's kind of downtrodden by the established elite the old money and he is not having it <laughs> it's hard to be sympathetic toward him though yeah yeah definitely I can't especially when he drops uncle tom on wesley's snipes oh, oh. i didn't really get where the prophecy came from and what they were doing <laughs> Yeah, I still don't understand what the deal with Pearl was. The big, like, yeah, huge Pearl job of the hut thing going the on. That they didn't really explain enough. Well, we definitely have a weakness here, so I don't think any of the three of us are super familiar with Blade in the comics. I mean, I'm, I'm decently familiar, but it's been a long time since I thought about it, because I don't think he's been super prominent. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I haven't read any of the recent books. Pearl, the, w- the wicked obese vampire, seems like something that was pulled out of, like, a Todd McFarlane comic, like this could be a Spawn character. Yeah, that, f- that has that feel to it, for sure. Although there was also a, like, a morbidly obese vampire in a Buffy episode pretty early on, where it's just somebody who's just inflated and just sits in this tub and hasn't moved in 300 years? The prophecy, I don't think that was super well fleshed out if I can make a terrible pun. Cause it, yeah, those it, were written it, on flesh, right? That, that That's what that was? Yeah, they're they're written on, on, on human skin, I think. Oh! It's getting Necronomicon-y <laughs> up in here. I was just like, that must have been a really big book. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I didn't... Like, why was Pearl there? It felt like there was some cut footage that might have explained... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Apparently, Blade has met Pearl before, and, like, they like they are aware of each other. Everyone's aware of Blade, I guess, because he's the famous Daywalker, but... There definitely seemed to be some sort of history there, and I loved Pearl's, like futuristic for the late 90s GUI on the uh, on the computer system there. Very, very great at establishing the positions of the, the elite council for the yeah. final scene. Yeah, very nice graphical representation. So, the, the, it was just that, like, Blade's blood was magic, and, like, the architecture yeah, he's the magic. chosen one. Yeah, apparently, even though this is a, a pretty sci-fi-up vampire world, there's still that sort of, like, deep history mythological angle on vampires, and they're still, like, a sort of vampire religion that is, a, that is like, like any secret ancient religion in a movie, 100% true. They just need Blade in order to awaken, you know, the, the super crazy uh, blood god. Yeah, I think they could have done more to hammer that down and kind of amp it up, especially because you've got the great, like, long con from Deacon Frost where he kind of had this huge hand in the creation of Blade as who he is in order to fill the process, the prophecy that he's trying to get through. That's true. No, no, no Hayes really ever made of that. The idea that, that Deacon, intentionally or not, and apparently unintentionally, because uh, he never makes any kind of claim to have done it on purpose, creates the Daywalker that he needs to, to complete his plan. And I don't think it's even mentioned that that, that, connection, that, that connection's made. He's either very lucky or very good. 
But I like that Deacon's plan is essentially the same evil plan as Magneto in the first X-Men movie, which is he wants to unleash a force that will turn everybody into vampires. True, true. Although it's unfair to compare anyone to Ian McKellen. Wouldn't that cut out their food source? Yeah, I think I heard that it's addressed in like a deleted scene or something. I don't know. Or maybe it's, I think, oh god, it's addressed in like a sequel, I think. Yeah, that doesn't help this. We have to judge the movie for itself. That's true. That's, that's, that's basically like saying we're going to turn all all cows and vegetables into people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now we'll have to eat people, I guess. But they're used to doing that, vampires, so... Yeah, then you've got Daybreakers, which is a totally different and, in my opinion, way less good movie. And I guess this uh, this vampire lord doesn't seem to have the thing where if they drink other vampire blood, they die or whatever. Apparently you can be a vampire that's sort of a weird zombie. That was kind that of... That shows up. There. Yeah, that doesn't really... didn't really accomplish anything for the for the plot of the movie besides to provide a like i guess a weird creep out scene for karen to meet her ex-boyfriend i think i stepped away from the screen or something when that was being explained because i did not understand like, these, like straight expositions that adam i think i think it's just a throwaway line to explain like oh yeah every once in a while everyone in you know i guess you know a hundred vampires doesn't really make the transition well and turns into kind of some kind of Weird, creepy zompire that we keep under the floorboards. Yeah, a lot of rare vampires in one place. There. Luckily, it's someone you know. <laughs> what a coinky dink. What are the odds? Also, can I just say that I'm going to admit right now that I watched Teen Wolf, the TV show. Also, have seen the movie, but still. And I thought for sure that the, the zombified boyfriend was J.R. Bourne, who plays Uncle Peter in Teen Wolf. Anyone else watch Teen Wolf? Never mind, sorry. Can't help, <laughs> Can't help you there. Hey, it's fine. I'm a 16-year-old girl, it's okay. So another character we can talk about, I guess, a little bit, uh, is Whistler, played by Chris Christopherson. Oh, awesome. Oh, I thought he was Jeff Bridges for a second there. <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs> you know, if you can't get Jeff Bridges, Chris, and you can't get, uh, and you can't get, you know, like, uh... Kurt Russell, then you get Christopherson. So he's uh, he's the the badass um, father figure for Blade, who curses like a sailor because it's R, and makes cool weapons. And in his, I guess, in most other respects, Alfred Pennyworth. Yeah, he's the wimpy, gruff, alcoholic father we all had. Um, it's like if Alfred Alfred had machine guns all the time. Yeah, it's like if Alfred was in Nam and just didn't have a good go of it. There are actually versions of that character out there now. Yeah. Um, uh, Batman Earth One or the Beware the Batman TV series. They have yep. sort of that more like uh, badass ex ex military Alfred, and that's a lot closer to what we see here with Whistler. That's the plan. That that seems to be what they're planning to do with Jeremy Irons as Alfred. I know that's kind of off topic, but it just was a thought. I like that they're apparently living in an open warehouse. Like yeah. the bad guys get in there pretty easily. No, their lair is enormous. Yeah, and it seems it's it, it's implied that they travel a lot, but. They've done a lot to make this place home, and how many warehouses are they able to find? I'm sure not every warehouse in every city is super well-guarded, but it seems like they've been there for a while. Yeah, there's sort of the implication that he moves from place to place, and he's only in, and I guess, if we're going to say Los Angeles for a period of time, and that once he wipes out this, this particular um, vampire clique... Vampire gang, the society there. At the end of the movie, we see that he's in Russia and he's doing the whole thing over again. Mm-hmm. How does he blend in anywhere in Russia? Like he wasn't doing a great job in LA, but like the weather, the haircut. Well, I mean, everybody <laughs> likes long coats in Russia. That's true. I mean, that's kind of a necessity. He, he's kind of into the like walk in through the front door. Yeah. Technique. A guy who's concerned with subtlety doesn't walk down the street with a katana on his back in broad daylight. <laughs> I just love his haircut. It's really cool. Wesley Snipes seems like he has a tremendous amount of fun making this movie. Oh yeah, definitely. And at least one of the most memorable lines in the movie was apparently an ad lib, which is his uh, his his post mortem uh, 
James Bond style quip. Some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. Yeah. I was watching that with one of my housemates. She turned to me and says, what does that mean? I was <laughs> like, if you didn't feel it, it wasn't for you. I don't I don't think it even really matters what it means. It's yeah. just a cool thing. It's like, you know, there's... It's just a cool thing to say right right before just, slash after you kill I've a vampire. I never really got into the, like, the, the mainstream of language. Yeah. Use that phrase more often. Well, let's make it happen. This is our fetch. We'll bring it back. I really liked... Uh, I think this movie benefited a lot from a lack of dialogue. Like, they, they didn't really... They didn't make Blade carry too much, like, exposition... They sort of, they were sort of like the talky characters, the ones that like Whistler would say a bunch of stuff, and bad guys would say a bunch of stuff. But like Blade got to just be cool and sort of like one, like one word at a time, you know. Yeah, Blade is like closer. Blade is closer to what like the movie Wolverine could have been like if it had been translated more directly, where it's not his job to explain things to you. It is not his job to make you like him. Mm. He's he's gonna just kind of move from place to place do his job and you can tag along and maybe you'll learn something yeah he, he's a guy who knows when it's time to shut up and stab stuff so I guess there are a couple more more subtle themes hidden in the movie I don't think it's it's a very super complex or, or deep film by any terms but there are a couple weird things hidden in there we talked a little bit about like the the sort of Oedipal thing where Blade misses his mom, and so he takes on this this woman who he I- identifies with, and then meets his mother. And I kind of thought um, that that gets played out later because in order to get his strength back, uh, Karen offers her blood, and I couldn't help but feel like maybe that's sort of like a, a sort of metaphor for like nursing, I guess, where yeah, he yeah. feeds he feeds from her, and like and he's already sort of sees her as a surrogate mother in a sense. And then he kills his vampire dad with that strength. Well, his vampire stepdad. Well, yeah, but it's, it's his vampire juices that made him what he is, if we want to get gross about it. This is about as personal as a, as a supervillain nemesis gets in a superhero movie, is that this is the guy that's been doing his mom for 35 years. <laughs> that's rough. First he killed his mom, and then, he's, then he moved in with her. That's... <laughs> That's pretty. That's pretty. Uh, that's pretty rough for. It's about as know, rude as it gets. Yes, I think also the movie hangs on to the idea uh, to, to the payoff that Blade is a vampire till about a, an hour into the movie. We don't get that confirmed for us or demonstrated for us really until an hour into the movie. I think if you didn't know that Blade was a vampire, had vampire powers at the beginning of the film, you might actually be a little. You might have to actually figure it out with her as you go along. I wish I could remember seeing this and not knowing that, because I really feel like they tried to hold on to that. I think there are a couple moments in the first fight where he, like, jumps across a whole room where it kind of comes out. Um, If At least if you're sort of in that, like, those tropes of vampire movies. Well, Jen, you hadn't seen this before. What? How much did you already know about Blade or the movie when you went in? I mean, I knew he was a vampire, kind yeah. I do like a little bit of pop culture hearsay about it, like, he was a vampire, he's not, he's like some sort of special vampire uh, that can walk around in the day. Uh, yeah, and that's about it. And I've seen, you know, I've seen the previews for Blade mm-hmm. 3. Ah, uh, yes, Blade Trinity. Yeah, I think that uh, my understanding is that Blade is a very, is like a much more flat character in future installments of the series where he doesn't really have as as much to do emotionally or doesn't seem to have as much range. Like here we see him usually being being stoic, but we also see him experience a little bit of joy in in his fighting. And, you know, he clearly likes, likes to win. He likes to have a, a, a good witticism. I know of people who prefer Blade 2. I think that Guillermo del Toro was attached to that project, I think. But uh, it's been so long since I've seen it, I can't really speak to like how it stacks up. But I know that some people definitely vote for Blade 2 over Blade 1. But I've heard Blade Trinity is pretty 
much in line with what you're saying. I think that movie's pretty universally loathed. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to say it's very bad, but... Oh, apparently the original ending for this movie was something more like what was being described by Deacon Frost. He was talking about like about uh, the, the vampire god being like a hurricane. Mm. Originally, he... <laughs> why that didn't happen. Well, why it didn't happen is that originally he was supposed to turn into like this huge like blood monster that's like made of blood and like would basically could could be like a, a, a both a giant monster and also like a force of nature kind of thing where he would use this shape-shifting ability more than what we saw which was just him getting cut in half and reconstituting himself did they run out of cg budget well apparently the the effects looked terrible it just it just looked really really cheap like we we, we got to see a little bit of it like whenever there was weird cg blood in this movie it did not look great and that's what the monster looked like at the end of the movie so they decided to go with a martial arts battle instead, which I think in this movie is is a much better choice considering how well those fights turn out. I was kind of glad they didn't draw out the final battle. I was kind of, like, it was a little short compared to what I'm used to. I kind of expected him to come back, surprisingly. Uh, but he didn't, and I like that. Good I think there's a lot of potential to fighting against, like, a blood wind, but at the same time, I really agree with Jen here that it was, it was a good battle. It wasn't drawn out like you can see I have a hard time even really visualizing what that fight would look like I think that footage exists for you to look at Uh, I did not explore that before the podcast yeah I could see him doing a lot of things to Blade but I'm not sure how you fight blood weather well I think the solution was still the same it had to do with using Karen's anti-vampire sort of vampire cure serum to to explode him yeah, but the build-up to that, like, scoring any points and that kind of thing, it's just kind of survive and then explosion serum. I think from the point they had that, like, moment where uh, the the blue serum was mistaken for blade serum, from that point on, I, like, knew how it was going to end. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm glad they didn't, like, bother with a bunch of extra build-up in the middle there. Yeah, they took their hand pretty hard with that, and I don't think it was unintentional. That's why it seems like, I think the ending that we got, I think, was really... I, I can't imagine it having had a, a, a better ending, because it really played to all the movie's strengths. It followed through on all of the on all the things that were set up, and it ended with a with a cool fight. And what this movie does best, I think, are, are cool sort of hand-to-hand to, hand to hand or, or sword, like, edged weapon-based fights. And sometimes sword to hand. Sometimes just slicing someone and them regenerating really fast. I really wanted to know why his shirt wasn't sliced up. Maybe his shirt's a vampire. Yeah, Maybe the, the blood god endowed his clothes with super shape gifting powers. <laughs> the, the, the titanium blade just can't really get through claw. It's tough, man. I think it's also important to note that this movie includes winged vampire skeletons. Crawling out of the mouths of other people's skeletons. That was a really good That idea. was awesome. The, the effects... Were they attacking him? Were they becoming part of him? I, I don't even care. It just looks that cool. Yeah. <laughs> the the effects in this movie, um, like the actual the execution of the effects, like the, the quality of the computer graphics or the, the uh, practical effects, because this movie still included some practical effects, um, is pretty cool, but the idea... And they don't they don't hold up great, but I think that the the concepts behind most of the cool visuals was really cool. I like the the dusting effect that was used when a vampire bought it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, honestly, the the effects were sort of like they're sort of old, but I think they integrated really well with the rest of the movie. Like the the skeletons climbing out of the mouths seemed like it, it wasn't it didn't seem corny somehow, even though it was that sort of. Uh, yeah, it was like. <laughs> Looks like it was from Mortal Kombat Four or something like that, which I believe was around the same time. Yeah, this would have been this would have been late in the N sixty four days, I think. Yeah. That was what N sixty four and PS one. Yeah, so that's like Mortal Kombat three or four. But anyway, yeah, uh, vampire culture in this movie has has a, a couple of of unique traits. Like we talked about the idea of there being sort of a pure blood versus like turned vampire thing. <laughs> Every time they talked about that, I just couldn't stop thinking about Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. Kind of took me out of it. It's a lot of Slytherin. Mudblood! Deacon's a mudblood. 
and also the idea that I, I can't recall. Um, I know it, it sort of goes back to, to Dracula having sort of human thralls, but we've got uh, also a class of humans that serve the vampires through the hope of the reward of immortality. The, the tattoo behind the neck was a cool touch, I think. Yeah, I like that. I saw it, and I believe it gets reused in a few different things, but the one that sticks out in my mind is the Cirque de Freak series by Darren Chin. I don't know if either of you guys read that, nope. or saw the pretty bad movie with John C. Riley. But yeah, that gets reused in later books. I like that. Oh, I think there's. I mean, I can't. I can't help but keep comparing this thing to True Blood because so much of the mythology lines up. Um, they even um, in True Blood, you have this sort of human anti-vampire religious sect that, um, in sort of a weird vampire version of of lynching, has vampires meet the sun. That's what they call it, where they where they basically they will capture a vampire and put them facing the sunrise. And vampires do that to one another in this movie. Deacon takes one of the uh, the vampire upper class Dragonetti, and that effect where he melts away is really cool. That's in an interview with a vampire too. Is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there you got Claudia is executed that way, I believe. And uh, a complete sort of like um like a vampire religion and mythology that that is a, like like a guiding force in in their own lives where there's like a whole other world that we don't see but it's as 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 complete and multifaceted as our culture is yeah i like that idea of kind of having a subculture and that kind of thing because there seems to be a lot of them so it would only make sense that if they can mostly only interact with one another they'd kind of have their own i guess like you said, culture going on. Were the vampires talking in Latin? I don't think that was Latin. I think that was just a vampire language. Made up language? Okay. You'd think I would know from all the Catholic schooling, but I don't remember. <laughs> they don't teach you, uh, they talk to a little bit of vampire language in uh, Catholic school? Yeah, I mean, you've got to know it in order to fight them. And that's what we do. That's another thing here in this movie is that the idea that the in this version, this sort of, I guess, more sci-fi um, incarnation of vampires, the holy water or cross... Uh, or yeah, I'm trying to remember the last time a cross did anything to a vampire in movies. I think this was kind of near the vanguard of that. Buffy held up crosses, I think, for, yeah. for unless you were like a wicked ancient vampire. I like that moment in... I, I think most vampire movies nowadays have that moment where they're like, oh, that thing you heard in story tales, does, uh, in, that doesn't work. Uh, all vampire <laughs> stories are recursive now. You really rarely hear about a vampire movie or book where no one's heard of vampires, but vampires are real. Uh, vampire stories always seem to acknowledge other vampire stories. Yeah, I think once Salem's lot hit, there was no going back. I'm trying to think of it. Anything predates that that kind of has that trope in it, but well, I, I'm kind of biased because I love Salem's Lot. Elements of vampire lore could go back really far into all kinds of really separate mythologies around the world before it really ever like ossified oh, yeah. into one sort of character. Got like Eastern European Revenants and all that jazz, but I mean, like just the idea of kind of oh, your stories are wrong and that kind of thing. I just like how they're always—they always take a moment to be like, "No, you're, that thing you heard isn't right," but all those other things you heard totally work. Oh yeah, yeah. There's that. There's an entire TV trope oh, page. Like, yeah. Our vampires oh, are different. The uh, the mirror thing, like I you know that in uh, they always have to like, in, in True Blood. They're like, "Oh yeah, the mirror thing's not true." We spread that around because then we would say, "Hey, look, you can see me in a mirror. I'm clearly not a vampire," and then we'd bite them. <laughs> I want to see a movie where like vampires have figured out to like take an allergy pill to avoid garlic problems yeah because yeah. they always bring it back to like anaphylactic shock yeah they had silver as anaphylactic shock and here they're like you know we have rates. medicine for that right yeah maybe like the epipen doesn't work well with vampire blood uh, i'd like to talk to my guests a little bit about the other things they do around the internet so, Jen Overstreet, you are a an illustrator, a web cartoonist, and a graphic designer, and do all kinds of stuff around here. Anything you'd like to talk about? Um, I'm just spending a lot of time on Twitter and doing illustrations. Uh, I've been doing craft. <laughs> I'm doing a lot of cross-stitching. It's really, 
It's really nerdy. Well, you can you out there can find Jen Overstreet on Twitter at StreetOverJen, and you can find her work at StreetOverJen.com. If anyone wants some cross-stitched fan art. What's the last thing you, you just worked on that's for that's for sale? Um, oh, it's it's not for sale yet, but I've been working on a Sailor Moon uh, cross-stitch fan art. <laughs> it's pretty great. And uh, and Cam, you uh, work at a literary magazine called The Rampalian, which can be found at therampalian.com. T-H-E-R-A-M-P-A-L-L-I-A-N. There we go. Tell us a little bit about The Rampalian. Um, it's started by a friend of mine named Becky, who I met in undergrad. And basically, it's an obscure slash semi-absolute word for the mean wretch. It just kind of publishes dark fiction, poetry, and they also do photography, so if you're interested, feel free to submit, it's free to submit, I think we're actually, yeah, our submission period should be open, uh, so yeah, give it a shot, would love to see your stuff, and uh, best of luck in that, I write, I edit, I, I'm a freelance editor, I also work for a PR agency, but really I'm just trying to make my way writing and editing. Alright, cool, now back to the movie. Well, this movie did have a number of lasting repercussions. Um, for one thing, two sequels and a, a short-lived TV show. Yes, yes. And uh, Marvel has it was recently a video game. and he had a video game too. And um, a resurgence. Like the character in the comics eventually was just this, just completely made. This is the character in the comics now. Yeah. Uh, however, little of the original Blade mythology they used from the comics in the movie. They've now completely. He's he's basically a new character in the comics based on the Wesley Snipes version, like Iron Man, just like Iron Man. Yeah. The um, Marvel Studios has reacquired the rights to Blade in the last couple of years, so there is um, the possibility that they will reintroduce Blade either on one of their television shows or as in a new feature film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It'll be interesting to see how differently that movie is done. Certainly, they'll continue to make PG-13 movies, probably, rather than having this more bloody, more more sexual, and more the word fuck-having version. I always love PG-like movies that involve a lot of violence, especially if it's, like, a vampire movie, because, like, they'll, they'll just have all this violence but no blood. It reminds me of something that I think it was Brian Fuller, but someone from the Hannibal, like, crew was talking about, where... There's this episode where the sky is being, his back is flayed and he's being hung nude and the, uh, whatever sensor body was like, oh, we can't have his butt crack showing on TV, cover <laughs> the butt crack. And like, that's great. You have no problem with us having somebody's back cut open and peeled backward to be, and, and then hung by piano yeah, wire to be wings and look like an angel. You have no problem with us exposing people's rib cage or like the weird sometimes sexual sort of overtones of the violence not a problem for you as long as we don't show anybody's butt crack so if they're going to do this again which eventually they probably are I mean we have an Ant-Man movie why not have a new Blade? There will be a Blade movie eventually. What do you think you'd like to see out of this idea that, that that didn't come through here if they were to do another one? Well, there's there's no going back to like the original Wolf Marv Wolfman, not like Werewolf Wolfman, um, Blade, where you've got kind of got the mostly normal savvy guy. But so I guess going forward, I it's kind of hard to top the Wesley Snipes version of Blade, especially because like you said, the current version of Blade is based off of Wesley Snipes version of Blade. So I don't know. I don't really know. I think maybe more more on the like techie side of the vampire like uh, society. I, I like when uh, vampire stuff sort of does away with the whole like goth aesthetic of not 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 wearing black, but like the whole churches and Latin and uh, ancient relics. You like vampire be. cyberpunks. Yeah. Well, they're halfway there. I mean, they're dressed like they're in the Matrix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though and, it's before the Matrix, I'm sure they would want me to say. And at this point, like Deacon Frost could bring the world to its knees without leaving his basement as long as he has a Wi-Fi connection. <laughs> Thanks, Mister Silva. Um, the one other thing about this movie is this is sort of the the beginning of the rise of David S. Goyer. 
uh, who wrote this movie and its sequel and then wrote and directed the third Blade movie and then co-wrote all three Dark Knight movies and Man of Steel and the upcoming Batman-Superman crossover movie and is responsible for the upcoming Gotham TV show and is attached to the upcoming Constantine TV show. He became, after Blade, after he did Blade for Marvel and New Line, apparently became the go-to screenwriter for Warner Brothers to adapt comic book works for better or worse. I, I think mostly worse. I I could see that. It's been a pretty roller coaster career, I guess, for him, but it really depends on how you feel about those movies. He does gritty movies? Yeah, he's, I think, one of the main people responsible. I mean, Chris Nolan obviously deserves a whole lot of the credit. Um for you were sort of responsible for the idea for Warner Brothers superheroes movies have to be super super grounded and unfun. You can do gritty, you can do gritty if you want, but like gritty and when the whole point of your movie is to just like punch some things and kill them, that's fine. Just like like keep it simple. Uh, does anybody have uh, any major closing thoughts about the movie? It just seems like a very like a very okay movie, where yeah. there's not a, there's not a lot to to geek out about and not a lot to make fun of. Yeah, it's yeah pretty I mean, it is what it is. It's just a good, solid, like simple action movie, and it doesn't try to it doesn't try to overcomplicate its world. Like it, it does some stuff that like a lot of the stuff relies on sort of general ideas about vampires already that you can easily access. And then, like, it adds a little exposition, but that's it. <laughs> then you're just punching vampires. Yeah, it's not incredibly self-reflective, and it's not as earnest as you really need a movie to be to kind of make fun of it. Like, The Room was trying so hard, and this just kind of knew what it was throughout, I think. All right, well, thanks, everybody out there for listening, and, and thanks to my guests for, for joining me tonight. Thanks for having us. Thanks. And we're going to be back next week with a look at the DC animated feature Superman Doomsday. So uh, we'll see you next week on Supers on Screen. Good night, everybody. Supers on Screen is produced by Dylan Roth for Deadshirt.net. Please visit Deadshirt.net for reviews and commentary on comics, movies, TV, music, and more. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Deadshirt.net. That's D-E-A-D-S-H-I-R-T-D-O-T-N-E-T on Twitter. Deadshirt.net. You can find me, Dylan Roth, on Twitter at Dylan Roth, D-Y-L-A-N-R-O-T-H. Find guest Jen Overstreet on Twitter at StreetOverJen or at StreetOverJen.com. And Cameron Diordio on Twitter at StopGrammarTime. Our theme music is Become the Night by Big Damn Heroes. Deadshirt.net. Consider everything.